Welcome to episode 10 of the Exposure Ninja Digital Marketing Podcast. In this episode, Lawrence, Brittany and myself are discussing how to plan the perfect website. Now obviously your website is central to your digital marketing strategy and the success of your website really defines the success of your overall strategy. If your website's good and does a good job of selling your business, then your campaign is much more likely to do well. If your website doesn't do a particularly good job of selling your business, then it doesn't really matter how much advertising you do, how much you spend on traffic or how many visitors you get, you're not gonna get the results that you need. So your website's really important. Because people don't tend to build loads of websites during their lives, the website planning phase can be a little bit confusing. How do you know what sort of things you need to include on your site? How do you know what the design needs to be? How do you make sure that all the conversion pieces are built in? So that's what we cover in this episode, how to plan your perfect website. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you find this and enjoy. Welcome to episode 10 of the Exposure Ninja podcast. This week, we're going to be discussing a website build. Uh, we're going to be looking at the planning and design phase. A website build is not something which people do particularly often. So generally speaking, people don't have enough time to, to gain experience of it. What we're going to do, we're going to go through the kind of things that you should be thinking about when you go through this process and uh, hopefully uh, give you some ideas when you build your website as well. So the first thing, um, how do we know when somebody needs a new website, Tim? You obviously do a lot of the website reviews, so you might have a, a better understanding of, of some bad websites out there. Yeah, totally. There's a few different criteria. First of all, your website is there to give a first impression of the business. It's there to be your salesperson online, effectively. So if it looks really out of date or doesn't really give an accurate perception of the business, then it's time for a redesign. Um, other kind of key things there... If it's not mobile friendly, for example, we're seeing now more than 50% of Google traffic coming from mobile. So obviously the site needs to be mobile friendly or mobile responsive. Another indicator that you might need a new site is if you're sending a lot of traffic to it, but that traffic's not turning into customers or leads. Again, that can be an indication that people aren't having a good time on the site or your business isn't being particularly well explained on the site. And thirdly, if you're if you're unable to edit the content on the site, that's you know really really fundamental to any SEO or pay per click or content marketing campaign. You need to be able to do things like add blog posts. If you're an e-commerce site, you need to be able to add extra products. You need to be able to add pages, edit the content on those pages. If you can't do that because your website is locked in, or it's on a content management system that's a little bit tricky to use then again, it might just be quicker and easier and give you higher ROI in the long run to get a new site done now. Basically, if you're not proud to send people to your website, then the chances are it's not reflecting your business particularly well. Okay, it's a good answer. Yeah, good full answer. So the three kind of takeaways from that, if your website's not mobile friendly, it needs an update. If you're not converting your traffic, we need an update. And if you're having trouble actually updating the website, then you should probably move over to a new platform. Cool. Is there anything that you wanted to add to that, Brittany, or you think those are the, the most important reasons why you would get a new website? Yeah, Tim's hit spot on there with, with all of them. So let's assume then that somebody has decided that, um, that they need a new website based on you know some of the criteria that we just mentioned. What, what do you think is the, the first thing they need to do before they start getting stuck in with that? I don't know if you wanted to take this one, Brittany, as you might have a, a good idea of the sort of planning stages of building the website. 
Yeah, sure. The main things that we need to do is, is work out what their goals are for the site. Obviously, sites on the internet, they do various different things. So we need to know what their site is there for. Are they wanting to sell a product? Um, are they just wanting to provide people with information about their business? Or is it gonna, is it are they wanting to generate leads for their business? We tend to sit down and work out what these goals are. And then obviously we come up there with a plan to how their website is going to work on the internet and how it's going to convert to, to what they want it to do. You've, if you've identified a goal, what things would that change about how you would design the website? So, so I mean, if we assume that the, the goal of the website is to, to sell products, what would that inform you about sort of the design process from there? First, first things first is a prime example would be like on the homepage. First thing we want people to see is that product they're trying to sell. Um, and with obviously using different designs, things that we can use to make things eye-catching to engage that person wanting to find out more information about that product. So, so simple techniques would be really eye-catching images and short, snappy sentences to, to draw people in. I think the other thing that's Brittany's hit on the head is that you design with the goal in mind, first of all. So everything about that website build has to be around selling that product or generating the lead. So the goal of the website is not to look pretty or even necessarily to give a good first impression for the business. Those are somewhat secondary benefits. The main goal is to sell and it's you know, that guides everything. So it guides the layout, as Britt says, it it guides what pages you have, it decides the structure of the navigation, everything is around that goal. We'll often work with people as, as you know, I'm sure Brittany can attest, but we'll work with people who have a specific marketing goal for their site and we'll design uh, a version of the site that's designed to get people to take that action to, to convert. And what ends up happening is, the client, the business likes to, or ends up trying to water down that vision because they have an idea of how the site should look or how the site should feel. And that kind of sometimes can override the the underlying purpose of the site. So it's really important that people are absolutely, you know, ruthless about the, the point of the site and what it's there to do. Just like any salesperson, the salesperson is there to sell if they look good or they sound very convincing, that's all fine. But there are plenty of websites out there that look good or look convincing that are absolutely useless from a sales point of view. So we we can't get distracted by any of that stuff. First and foremost, identify the goal and then work back from there. Things like design and making it look pretty have to come underneath that. Okay, cool. So you mentioned one point that I wanted to actually bring up, which is the the structure of the website and the way that that, that sort of should be should be based on your goal. <clears throat> so I know this is something that that you're really keen on, Tim, is that the structure of the website in terms of making it as easy as possible for somebody to to take that goal. How how would you go about structuring a website that that makes it as easy as possible? What are the sort of steps that you do for that? Well, the best way to think of it is to imagine the user's flow through the site and then design for that flow. So when you land on, say, a homepage, what are the questions that you need answering? You need answering, is this broadly for me? So what does this business do? Where are they based? If it's a locally dependent thing, what are the advantages of doing business with these guys rather than competitors? And am I a good fit for this company? Like, am I a qualified potential buyer? 
Once those questions are answered, the next stage is to get a bit more detail about exactly what it is that they offer, whether it's products or services. So how we would order the navigation and the pages of a site is to take people through this process. So homepage is broadly, is this for me? Then we'd have say service or product pages, which give a bit more detail about what that business does. We might then have some social proof elements. So how do I know that these guys are good? Is there a case studies page and testimonials? And then after that, we might have additional information like a blog or about us. And then we'll have some kind of call to action, some kind of goal, like a contact us page. So that's, a, you know, obviously every business is different and every business has slightly different goals. But that's the, the kind of overall structure that we'd usually work with. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned things like the about us and and blog and that kind of thing, which we are going to talk about in a minute. But I think maybe it's worth just kind of highlighting. So, so what you're saying there is that the the most important pages of the website, the pages that that give you that the, that actually achieve your goal of of selling that product or getting somebody to pick up the phone and give you a ring or whatever it might be, those those pages that are orientated around the goal are the kind of the ones that are most visible on the page. And then stuff like the about us and the blog is kind of slightly less visible. Is that is that the sort of idea yeah i mean if you look through analytics accounts of hundreds of websites like like we have you find that the about us page is is you know of, of relatively little interest to most visitors as long as there's adequate information about exactly what you do right when someone lands on your site they're not thinking oh i wonder how long this company has been in business all they're thinking about is can these guys help me get to my goals and if they can wicked People will go to an About Us page if there's not enough information elsewhere about how this business can help me. But generally, it's you know one of those pages that's that's a lot of time and energy goes into it because the business who's creating the site thinks, oh, you know, everybody wants to know about our history. They want to see the pictures of us and you know all that stuff. Whereas the users are just you know they don't care about that stuff really. That's the that's the kind of icing on the cake. It's the real meat of it which which needs more prominence. Yeah, definitely. So even the about us page is kind of focused on that on that goal of your business getting sales in or leads or whatever it might be for your particular business. Cool. So as well as the structure of the website in terms of the goal, structuring the website can also be quite important for SEO purposes as well. I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about how the structure might affect SEO, Brittany. Okay, same again, it all does come down to what the the main goal is of the site. So as this example, I'll go with a site that's selling products or a a variation of products. So one thing may be that an example would be like a stationary company is from an SEO side of it, we would suggest that you'd have a category page that may be just relating to pens. And within this page, we'd optimize that page for pen stationary. But then underneath that it breaks down again then it could break into individual products which then gives you an added page that you can optimize for a product so for example if the pen one of them pens might be a ted baker pen you could then optimize that product page for a ted baker pen but then the one next to it might be a different brand so you are you're kind of you're selling one type of product but you have more than one page that you can optimize for different sort of phrases that people would use in google to find that product Okay, cool. So, so you touched on there. Obviously, yeah, we're going to be optimizing individual product pages for for Ted Baker pens, and you also mentioned the the kind of product category pages as well. So, so just so everybody's kind of clear, the product category pages is something which we're we're using for for a specific SEO purpose as well. Yeah. So, I I kind of class your category pages quite a is it quite a generic term. So, pens, for example. So, 
that generic so you'd optimize for that sort of type of phrase and then obviously you can step down a leveled net well to the next level which would then be more brand specific if it needed to be or product specific but overall you're providing different levels of technically entry into a site for products yeah so so the kind of important takeaway from that is if you've got in, in, people out there searching you know for you know basic stationary pens that's a very different google search from somebody that's that's searching for you know high end fountain pens and that kind of thing uh, so those are two completely different kind of product category examples aren't they and we'd want to have a page optimized for each of those but the, the yes. kind of main takeaway is that the the actual individual product pages are, are not the best place to be doing that kind of seo work isn't it and exactly the same with a service business so we talk about plumbers a lot because everybody can relate to a plumber if you're a plumber you offer multiple services you don't just offer plumbing so you offer boiler repair you offer boiler installations you offer central heating you offer gas engineering you offer landlord safety certificates and you would have separate pages for each of these on your website because they're each completely individual services that you know if i'm looking for a boiler repair i might not type in plumber nottingham i might type in boiler repair nottingham so if you've got an entire page which is optimized for that service not only have you got more chance of showing up in search but as someone who's looking for boiler repair if i land on that page and you've told me about what sort of boilers you repair how long it takes what your call out time is for boiler repairs the sort of models that you work with you know all of that then you've got much more chance of converting me than if you just say hey we offer plumbing including boilers right because i knew nothing about that so i'm not able to um, i'm not really able to to make a decision about how useful you're going to be to me Whereas the more content that you've got and the more dedicated pages for each different product or service, the more chance you've got of converting as well as ranking in the first place. I think that's a really fantastic example, actually, of how the the, the kind of SEO benefits of, of putting in a search, like you say, boiler repair rather than just plumbing in Nottingham, also tie in really well with the goals of the website. So I know for, for me personally, you know, I might go onto a, onto a website like that. And, and let's face it, plumbers websites tend to, to not be all that detailed particularly often and you may you may not be entirely sure if this individual plumber is actually going to do the specific job that you're interested in unless that you know if they've got a page on their website that says yes i i do do boiler repairs then i wouldn't particularly know whether or not they do or not so i think that's a really fantastic example of how you know usability and it ties in with the seo and and uh, we can achieve both of those kind of goals at the same time really yeah, it, having a well-optimized SEO site should not be about pages of boring content that's just been dumped on there to in order to rank better. And then you've got to try and bury all that content to, to make your site usable. The usability and the SEO should work hand in hand. SEO should help conversion. It should help usability. It, you know, everything should help each other. None of them should be conflicting. One quick example that I've got just from something I was doing recently, we had to get some trees removed from our garden. And I was looking on websites for people that kind of do garden and maintenance and that kind of thing. It seems probably, I would say, roughly speaking, about half of people that are in the garden and maintenance business 
don't remove trees because it's quite a big job. But 100% of the garden and maintenance websites do not mention whether or not they actually do remove trees or not. I had to phone every single one, which was ridiculously time consuming and really annoying for me. And I'm just putting it out there. If a single one of them had said on their website, tree removal, and that was a page on their website and they detailed how they do that service, that's the one I would have gone with instantly. Like I wouldn't have had to, to search. I wouldn't have had to phone anybody and ask. I could have just gone, yeah, this guy does what I want. And then I could just go for it. So yeah, the exact, definitely you know, tie, usability SEO all ties in together. So one thing that I've, I do quite use, well, I use the technique quite a bit when I look at other people's sites is if I come to their homepage is how many clicks does it take me to find the information that I'm looking for? And I find that if it takes more than five clicks or through five pages to find that content I'm looking for, people do find it frustrating and you have a higher chance that they will go, they will come off your site completely because it does indicate that the content is too hidden for them to find and the frustration level of a, of a user comes into play then and they just think oh well I can't find what I'm looking for so I'm going to go somewhere else so I always say to people that it's quite handy to restrict the clicks or path of how many clicks it takes to get to certain information so I always say probably about four or five clicks about maximum to find something on a site. Yeah definitely and, I'm, and I bet that you've got some some analytics data to, to back that up as well haven't you in terms of you know clicking through the website and seeing the pages that people drop out on and, and the fact that people don't get to those sales pages if you've got you know six seven clicks kind of thing. Yeah if you have analytics on your current website you'll be able to get that information straight away um, and you'll be able to see actually how a user interacts with the site where they're going and where they're falling off. If, if you're finding that nine out of 10 users are all falling off at the same point, then you have an issue there. And that's where you need to, need, need to have a look and resolve that problem to try and get people to move on to the next step. Yeah, if, if you imagine that every page on your site has a bounce rate of at least 30%, which is typical, some sites will see a much higher bounce rate. So that means 30% of people drop off every time they have to open a page. So if you're forcing people to go through five page loads, it's like, you know, how many goes at Russian roulette do you want? It, you, you, you want to get that person to the information they need as quickly as possible. Because if you're losing 30% every time, then by the time you've made them click five times, you know, very few people are left. So on EN builds, we'll do things like have a, a mega menu or have nice menu drop downs. And the benefit of that is if I'm, say, looking for a, a garden clearance person and they've got a tab on their menu that says, garden services and then i click on that and i can see a drop down that comes down and that says you know waste clearance or garden clearance and then there's a, a drop down from that that says tree removal well i've got to my tree removal information in just one click and you know much better experience for me much better experience for the tree removal guy because i'm getting straight to the content i need if that content's appealing there's the conversion it's quick it's taken me a few seconds to find the information that i need and everyone's happy cool so yeah i think we've moved on to website design section then we've got some stuff to talk about here then so in terms of yeah um website design what what do we need to do to, to actually start planning a, a, a good looking design website I don't know if you want to take this one, Brittany, as you're obviously building the website. First thing I always say is, is, is to have a look at your competitors. If they are doing really well, have a look at them, see what they're doing and see how you can potentially go along the same route as them, but make it even better. And so that's kind of a good, it's a good place to start because obviously if they are doing well, 
generate they're, they're technically going to be generating income from from their site also same again it does come back to their goals that they have for the site so we have to we ha- we do have to stand back sometimes in design and say well actually what you what you are coming to us with or what you are wanting to do is not going to fit your site and it's not going to co- convert customers when when we work with our clients first thing we do is we sit down with them and we have the conversation of what websites they like so we we get on the internet and they we load up a few sites different layouts and different examples and we explain to them what will and what won't work some sites um, that they they show us that they really love just will not work for their business or for what they're trying to achieve on the internet. So we'll show them alternatives. What we do find is really helpful is if you have a look at competitors. Nine times out of ten, if you have a competitor that's doing really well, then their site is working for them and it is generating them business. But then in the back of your mind, you do have to say to yourself, how can I implement a similar sort of thing but make it even better for that end person using that site? So it's a good starting point of looking at other people's sites, seeing what's out on the internet, but also bearing in mind that some designs and some layouts will not work for your your, your site itself because it just won't convert people into customers. I think that's a really important point and maybe we should highlight there. So uh, when we're looking at websites, we're getting clients to to see websites that they think are good. Obviously, we're interested in, in ones that, that look nice, that, um, that are visually appealing. But more importantly than that, we're looking for competitors' websites that are actually, you know, making money from their website because, you know, that's that's really the the end goal, isn't it? So, you know, a, a fantastic looking website is great, but you know, a website that that looks nice and makes money is is even better. So that's the kind of thing that we're sort of focusing on, really, isn't it? And you can, you know, even if you don't know if a site's making money, when you're when you're out there looking for reference sites that you might want to model for your site think about how you are finding the site does it make it easy for you to find the information that they need that you need is is it really obvious to you what you're supposed to do on each page don't pick a site design that you like because it just looks pretty or it's really spacious or you know there's loads of white space or there's fancy animations or anything like that because you know with, with a few exceptions fancy animations and the success of a website are like inversely proportional so so yeah don't don't be afraid about choosing a site based on usability rather than just is it pretty you'd rather have a grizzled old school looking salesman who's really good at selling rather than some pretty salesperson who has like absolutely no you know sales results at all right Cool. I think so. We spent probably the last kind of twenty minutes or so of this podcast talking about how design is is not important, and we're focusing on uh, on goals and sales. Maybe we should talk a little bit about you know some of the reasons in, in which design can be quite important. So people do have a kind of initial first impression when they land on a website, for example. So if people are going to bounce, often they'll bounce within the first kind of you know five seconds or something like that. And you know, really, they probably haven't even looked at your content at that point. They've just looked at you know the layout and, and whether or not it looks nice so what are some of the kind of things that we should be considering in order to, to give a, a good kind of first impression uh, and anything that boosts credibility so presence of testimonials logos of people that you've worked with if they're recognizable 
case studies, you know, anything that that kind of builds the case for for you being a good business. All of that stuff is great. Um, if you've got some personality in the business, if there's a figurehead or if, if you're just a solopreneur or whatever, then don't be afraid about getting some of you on the site as well, because chances are that's going to help you stand out from your competitors. And then just making sure that on every page, whatever page somebody lands on, is there something compelling which is going to compel them to take action, right? To take the desired action. So if you're a service business and you're selling tree surgery or, you know, tree clearance or whatever, on that tree clearance page, is there something there which is really compelling? So fill in this form for a quick quote, fill in this form for an immediate callback or give us a call for an immediate quote, you know, something like that. If you're trying to get a tree removed, that's really, really compelling. So that sort of stuff is important. We're not saying that design isn't important. Design is absolutely crucial because an ugly site is just gonna, you know, it doesn't matter where all the elements are and what the message is. If it's ugly, chances are it won't convert. So it has to be good looking, but we're saying make the site, you know, focus on the focus on the conversion stuff first because the good looking stuff is relatively easy compared to all that. Cool. So we've got um, credibility and we've got personality as, as some stuff that we want to be getting across as soon as possible. One specific thing I wanted to mention is is the imagery that you might use on a website. So bad quality imagery can can make a website look pretty awful kind of straight away. So what are some of the sort of design techniques that you would use when when picking imagery? I don't know if you wanted to, to cover that one, Brittany. When it does come down to imagery, they, they do they kind of, I always say they can make a site or they can break a site in a way. If you have a poor image in a site, it can just change the look and the feel of a site compared to a higher quality image. I always say personal images that you've taken yourself are better than the images that you can purchase on the internet. So I always say to people, wherever possible, if you have images that you can use, use them rather than going to like a firm, like a Shutterstock or a stock image. Yes, they're brilliant and the quality of them is there. But too many of them images can change the look of the site again, and it doesn't give it as much of a personal touch as images that you've taken yourself. Images that you've taken yourself, you'll notice that they'll have a similar sort of style and a similar sort of feel to them, flowing through them. So, for example, back to the plumber guy, you may have an image of him outside with his van. And then you go to another page and you've got an image of him working on a boiler. Whereas sometimes with images that you can find on the internet, you kind of get a, a mismatch of images of a girl doing something and then a man doing something or a different man doing something else. And you can just tell that they've just, they have been purchased and they've kind of just been plonked there. So it is a bit of a fine link between what sort of images you, images to use on sites. Yeah, definitely. So I think that kind of comes back to what Tim was saying about credibility and the personality, really, doesn't it? So if we've got our own images that we've taken ourselves, and that then that gives us much better credibility because you know this isn't this isn't a picture of me actually performing the job that you want to hire me for. So you know that that's much more um, credible than just some stock imagery of of some woman standing next to it and smiling. Even if the image is high quality and, and looks really great, like the actual the actual credibility is not really there, is it? Personal images will always give you give the person the added comfort that you're actually real and you're actually genuine. And then they can say, actually, you can see the guy at work on his own website. You can see who's going to be coming to your house to do that work. So it does. It is like you say, it's an added factor of, of trust as well with, that you have with that in person looking at the site. It's, it's obviously important that 
you know, original images are good quality because particularly for modern sites where, you know, there's a there's a trend of really wide full screen layouts and a lot of the perception, as, as Britt said, a lot of the perception of the, the design of these sites is down to the images that are used. A lot of modern WordPress themes, for example, are mostly images. And actually the the true design is, is really in just placing these images and then choosing fonts. And that's that's pretty much it. So the the kind of quality of the images is important for businesses that want to give a really professional look and feel. For businesses where it's much more about the, you know, quick and dirty and the, the personality, actually it matters not at all, the quality of the sites. We, we built a lot of plumbers sites and, and what we found there is that those plumbers who didn't send us any pictures and we just used, you know, generic stock photos from the internet, while the quality of these stock photos was much higher than what that plumber would have sent us, you know, had his wife taken a photo of him by the van on his phone, the the conversion rate was actually lower than when he, you know, stood there and, you know, put some trousers on and she uh, <laughs> she took a photo of him by the van. Actually, that stuff converted better. Even if it looked like absolute rubbish, it was like all blurry and her finger was over the corner of the camera, whatever. It doesn't really matter because at least that's real. And compared to most of that market where it's all just the same smiling American plumber with his shiny tools in a perfectly white bathroom, and it, we know that's not the guy who's turning up. We know that it's just a completely different thing. So give us personal rather than this kind of manufactured appearance any day. Cool. So we've talked quite a bit about plumbers and, and that kind of thing, that those sorts of businesses in, in regards to uh, imagery on the website. I wonder if there's any differences in terms of an e-commerce business. Does it does it change the situation if we're if it's an e-commerce business website that we're building? One of the things that you'll notice about the most successful e-commerce sites is that they have a lot of images and they tend to take them themselves. So if you're drop shipping, then you're probably relying on images provided by the distributor or the manufacturer. And the downside of this is that they can be relatively low resolution and give very few camera angles. Obviously, it depends on the product that you're selling. But if you're selling something you know, high end like clothing or something, you know, where, where the where the look of the product is really important, then get as many good quality images as you possibly can. You know, you can't go overboard. If it's a bag that you're selling, show it from the back and the front and the side and underneath and inside. You know, you, you've got to imagine if someone was looking at that bag in the shop, would they just walk up to it, look at it head on and go, yes, I want that bag. Or would they pick it up, have a look, you know, really get into it? Would they have a look at the buckles and the strap and all the fixings and all of that? Or, would, you know, so so we need to replicate that experience online. So if you can have lots of different camera angles, if you can make sure that the pictures are consistent from image to image, you'll notice a company like, for example, ASOS, all of the photos of all of the products are taken by ASOS, right? The manufacturers have got tons of images for these products. So why are ASOS doing it? They're doing it because then they have control. They can make everything look consistent, which increases the perception of the ASOS brand. And it also means that they can do the little filming of the catwalk things, which sells a lot of clothes. So e-commerce businesses really shouldn't underestimate the importance of, of product images. It's well worth some, some decent investment. Oh, fantastic. Yes, we've got some, some good advice there. We're going to go for a quick ad break. And then when we get back after the ad break, we're going to be looking at the writing on your website and give some advice about that. Interested in learning more about digital marketing and want to access the latest ninja strategies? The Exposure Ninja blog is where we share some of our coolest stuff. So if you want to see behind the scenes of some real life marketing campaigns, find out what's working for us on the front line 
and keep up to date with the latest in digital marketing, head over to ExposureNinja.com forward slash blog. We update it regularly, at least twice a week. So if you want to learn more about websites, SEO, pay-per-click, social, Facebook ads, or anything else digital marketing, then head over and subscribe at ExposureNinja.com forward slash blog. Okay, so we're back with the Exposure Ninja podcast. Uh, we're now we're going to be looking at the writing on your website. So what is the, the first thing that you should be considering when you're actually writing content for the website, Tim? Uh, make sure it's good. <laughs> uh, make sure it's well written. We'd always say get the writing done by a professional writer if you can. And that's not just because we do writing. Like for the new Exposure Ninja site, I wrote some bullet points and I wrote as much as I could and then handed it over to people who really know what they're doing, the copy team. The difference between professionally written copy and copy written by the business owner or someone who's just having a go, even if you're reasonably good at English, is vast so yeah get the copy written by someone professionally if you can if you can't then for heaven's sake make sure that you spell check it make sure you grammar check it that you run it past other people read it out loud to make sure that it's you know easy to follow and and, and makes perfect sense because weak copy can can really let the side down Cool. So a um, couple of specific things um, in regards to writing. So one thing that I've noticed is that badly written copy often, you know, takes uh, a lot of, a lot more words to describe the same thing than, um, than, than well-written copy does. So that's kind of one benefit, isn't it, is, is the kind of length of the copy and getting people the, the right information that they need. Yeah. And this can also be something that's butchered by clumsy attempts to SEO copy. So if you know that you need to include keywords and variations, it's important that that's handled sensitively and that you don't just extend the copy ridiculously with all these variations of these keywords, which you know you're trying to stuff in. So the, yeah, I mean, the, the first, the primary goal of the text on the site is to sell the visitor. The secondary goal is to tell Google what the site is about um, so that Google can rank it. So we need to keep those importances in, in the correct order. And that's another reason, isn't it, why things like product category pages can be quite important, can't they? Because, you know, as a business owner, you're probably sitting there thinking, well, I know I need to write some information somewhere on my website about this specific brand of pen or, or fountain pens in general. But if you don't sort of plan out those product category pages, then you may end up putting that that content in the wrong place. And it just looks really out of place, doesn't it? And it kind of looks like it's, you know, for SEO purposes and not for people purposes. If you think of the product category pages, uh, the page where you help people who don't know how to make a decision about that product category. So going back to the e-commerce pen site, if I don't know how to choose what sort of pen that I should buy, then the pen category page or the fountain pen category page is the perfect way to give the visitor some information about what sort of things they should be looking for, what some of the main criteria are, what some of the most popular choices when somebody's looking for this. So that pen or fountain pen category page is the text there is is not just you know text that we pump in for the sake of ranking although obviously that is a really important criteria and that's primarily why it's there in the first place but if you're going to be writing on the on the category page as every e-commerce site should then it's a yeah it's a good opportunity to funnel people through to the right product for them 
one other point just in regards to writing is um, if you've got kind of long pieces of text, what we want to be doing is doing some kind of layout work in order to, so that that doesn't look quite so overwhelming. So, you know, Brittany, again, obviously you do, you're actually doing the physical work of designing the websites. What would you do if you've got, you know, long pieces of text that, um, that may be sort of overwhelming when somebody looks at that website? There's, there's a few different things um, that can be done, especially from a design side. You do have to be careful with them, though, because some techniques that are used can actually affect content being indexed in Google. It is a bit of a touchy subject sometimes to have what you can and can't do with content. Simple things is just to break it up, break it up into, into sections. So if you've got a page that's about four or five different things, then, then break it up and add some images into it to, to make it look a lot shorter. Shorter content, people tend to read a lot more than something that's really big and really long. But there is there is all sorts of different techniques and design ideas and ways of laying content out that's potentially big content and make it look smaller. Uh, don't be scared to obviously to, to go to a designer and actually say what can you do with this because they then they, those on them guys have got the the edge of being able to to do something fantastic and make con- make big chunks of chunks of content look attractive for people to read. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that it might, that some of this might affect how the website's indexed by Google. Can you, can you give some examples of that? I'm sure people will probably be wondering what, what you mean by that. So one of the most popular ones that people tend to use now is tabs. So tabs, even they run along the top of a container and within a container, it's got text in there. So say for example, you've got like a tab one and that has like an introduction and then tab two, tab two might be um, how this works. And Technically, what Google does is because you are you are technically hiding the content, anything after that that first tab. So if you have five tabs after, then five tabs with all that content in, Google kind of dismisses it because they see it as irrelevant because you're not actually showing it to the end user straight away. You are only showing them that first tab. So there is there is different tabs tab layouts that you can have, but they they all work under a similar um, similar functionality and the coding is very similar. So they all have the same effect on content. Does that also happen, for example, if you've got a website with some subheadings on the page and then you've got kind of plus icons there that you can click in order to expand that that text? So if that text isn't yes. visible. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. So anywhere you can see like a header and it's got a plus if you if you drop that if you click it and it drops content down or it pulls content in, you are technically in the in the coding behind it you're actually telling the site not to display it until a user actions it. So when when Google sends their little spiders out to crawl your websites, as I like to call them, they see that code and they're saying, well, actually, they've told that content to be hidden. So it can't be relevant unless that client, that person clicks on it. So obviously they, 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 their algorithm picks that up and obviously can then obviously rank that content down that you've added in. If, if you look, for example, at Amazon and, and e-commerce is a classic case where this happens, people will have a, an e-commerce product page and then they'll have the description of the product on one tab. They'll have reviews on another. They'll have delivery information on another. They'll have, you know, additional information on a, on a fourth of, and whatever. You look at Amazon, if, if, if that was a successful strategy, why wouldn't Amazon have adopted it? Why did Amazon have these massive pages with very little hidden text? Amazon has a small amount of hidden text under the read more for the initial product description, but, but that's it. Well, the reason it's not hiding any of that, the reason it doesn't have a tab for the reviews thing is that people are happy to scroll if 
they continue to get benefit as they're scrolling. So the you know there's no there's no benefit to be had by hiding this stuff behind little accordions or or, or tabs or anything. Just figure out an attractive way to display that text on the page on load, and then you know you get both benefits. Um, one one other question I had is in regards to that. So um, you say obviously that uh, Google's not going to index that text if it's behind a, a plus icon. Uh, I know that uh, Google, if it sees duplicate text on uh, on loads of pages across the website, Google may think that that's bad because you've not got original content on those pages. Um, I wonder if uh, hiding content such as your returns policy or like sizing, if you're just you know, if it's you know the same sizing information for all the products across the website. If, uh, if hiding that information in a plus is, is kind of a beneficial in terms of SEO. It's not that Google's not indexing the content that's being tabbed. It's that, as Brittany said, it's it knows that that content isn't visible. So it's less likely to give it prominence. It's, you know, it, it, it has that choice. Hiding things like sizing info or delivery info. Yeah, it's not so important because that content is going to be on other pages. Google knows, and you know, this whole thing about duplicate content, I think, is is takes a, a lot more prominence in people's minds than than maybe it necessarily should. Google's not going to punish a site that has common sizing info on every page or common delivery info on every page. But having said that, as long as you've got that visible somewhere on the site, it's not going to be as important to show that on every single page as it would, you know, a unique description about that product, for example. So the next topic that we want to cover in the Building the Website podcast, we want to talk about hiring a web development company. So so some people obviously can have a lot of problems with this. They can find that it's a bit of a nightmare. Obviously, you know, at Exposure Ninja, this is work that we do. So we try and stay as impartial as we can. You know, what are some of the tips that you can give people out there in order to make sure that, that their own web development project runs uh, runs smoothly? Do your research look get online if if you are looking at a company to work with get online read the reviews read what other people are saying about the company even go down to if you've seen a site that's been developed by that, that this company has developed get in contact with that company that's used them before and that's worked with them ask for some reviews off of them and ask if they if they had any issues with them don't be afraid to to get out there and ask people what they think of that company they've worked with it's it's really important it can if, if you have a bad experience with a web development company, it can it can make your life a nightmare at times. And especially after you've had that experience, putting trust into another company is so hard for people to do. That's very true. Yeah, we're quite often the first date after a messy breakup and we hear a lot of horrendous stories about projects that just get delayed to, you know, a ridiculous amount. So yeah, just just read some reviews online. Have a look on their Facebook page. Have a look on Google Plus. See what people are saying. It, just type in their name and then reviews, and you know stuff will show up. I wonder um, if uh, if something else that could be useful for customers is is information about how that company manages that project. So, for example, rather than just having you know you know a, a single kind of deadline goal for when the website's going to be built, to have you know this is when we're going to show you our first draft. This is when we're going to show you a finished page. This is when we're going to actually put this kind of stuff live. I wonder if that sort of you know project management details is something that that people might find useful as well. Yeah, totally. Same again. Just if you if you want if you see a company and you want to work with them, don't be afraid to ask them what their processes are. I have people on a regular basis come to me and, and say, What are your processes when you come to do this? And we're honest with them and we tell them. 
we'd rather work that way than, than say to somebody that we're going to deliver this site at this date and then it gets closer and closer and closer and we can't hit it. So if we if you can find a company that are happy to work in stages, it's a lot easier to manage the project yourself and with the company to work in that way. Cool. And um, we also wanted to talk about what are some of the things that um, as the customer you can be doing in order to make sure that the project runs smoothly as well. So I know that quite quite often with, with some of our website builds, we might be waiting for a customer to provide information or to provide a, a specific piece of content and that can sort of hold up the process. So are there any other examples of things that customers can be doing in order to make sure that their own website gets built as quickly as possible? Yep. So just jotting simple notes down, it comes, the main part that does hang up um, development is content, jotting notes down as much information as possible to, to pass on to if somebody's going to be writing your content to pass on to them is, is so helpful. It will speed the process up. And if you can give a, a really good detailed overview of your business and what you are wanting to achieve, it can make it a lot easier to, to speed up the process and to be given your end product rather than your web development company trying to pull information from you left, right and centre because they're not sure how you work on a day-to-day basis. So if you can provide all that information straight away or in the early, really early stages of the project, you'll find that it'll, things will move a lot quicker. And then the other thing is that, that there's certain stages, isn't there, um, within the development where um, we're waiting for a customer to give the OK to say, yes, this is what I wanted or, or no, these are the changes I need to make. So uh, sort of waiting on that is, can be quite time consuming as well, can't it? So a, a quick turnaround if, uh, if we're asking questions is, is quite important too, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. We, the way that we work with our clients is if we feel that a client, say, for example, when they've gone into design, if we feel that they aren't being as responsive as we'd like them to be when we've sent them the first draft, then we we get them, we will send them an email over saying, what do you think of these other things? And have a look at our pin interest board to see if there's any things that catch your eye. So we, we try and engage with them on a different level that they may understand. Now, sometimes it can be that clients can delay a project, but it just comes down to the fact that they are really busy and they are running a business plus trying to to communicate with with the web development company to sort their website out, so we have you do have to allow some time um, in delays of things. But if you if people are really struggling, look for a company that you can just basic you can turn around to them and say, "This is what I want. Can you write my content? Can you do my design to how you think is going to be the best way to get me on the internet and the best design to convert people?" And just pass it all over to the experts to do it, to do it they'll then do it for you and deliver. And then obviously you, you've got a site there that's going to bring, start generating your business. Definitely. One thing that I can see from the podcast notes, Tim, you put in a, a note here saying that in order to speed the project along, somebody shouldn't pay everything up front for the, for the, uh, for the website build. Um, I find it quite interesting that you put that in the notes considering obviously, you know, that's, that's where we're getting our money from. So yeah, would you like to kind of expand on, on why you think that's so important? Yeah. I mean, the entire reason I started Explosion Ninja was talking to someone who paid a lot of money up front to a web development company he paid the whole fee for the site so they had absolutely no incentive to finish it so they didn't if you pay everything up front the trouble is the the company is is not really incentivized to to work on the site if you know if, if they're a scummy company then they're not really incentivized to work on it once they've had that payment from you so 
you know, the reason we take money up front and then money once the design has been signed off and then money before the site goes live is it means that we're both in this together. You know, we want to get the site finished just like the client does. So any company that just wants all the cash up front, I'd, I'd say avoid them because, yeah, you, you can't really, if, if things start to go slowly, you know, what are you going to do? You've already given them everything. Just to add to that, one thing that is really important is that you need to make sure that you read. If they have terms and conditions, make sure that you've read them. We've had experience in the past. We've had people that have paid a lot of money for a site and it turns out that they don't actually own their site. So if they was to move it to somebody else, the client, that the, the guys that actually made it are going to take all the infrastructure away and it technically means they've got no site. So just make sure that you read your terms and conditions that you own 100% of the site after completion. Yeah, they might be building it on a proprietary CMS or something like that. That's just, it's like on their server and they can't actually extract your website. So, you know, if you, if you finish any service with them and they've, you know, they've, they've kind of got you and there's nothing you can really do. So yeah, that, that is super important. Especially if you're paying a lot of money as well. It's, you're paying out a lot of money for something that you, you want to own a hundred percent of it. So you have the freedom to do whatever you want with it. Awesome. So yeah, we've covered, you know, how to make sure that that process um, building the website is as easy as possible. The next question people might be wondering is, should they go with a, a large web development company or should they go with a with a freelancer? So what what would your advice be there, Tim? Okay, the main the main thing to think about when when you're thinking about getting a website done is the the, the person who designs a site and the person who develops a site, these are completely different skill sets. The designer is a creative type. They spend their time making things look pretty. And obviously they've got a conversion mind as well. But, you know, that sort of creative personality is, as Brittany will be able to attest, just a complete polar opposite to the typical developer who is very code oriented. They're, you know, focused on executing tasks flawlessly. They don't tend to cope too well with you know, obviously this is generalization, but they don't, developers don't tend to cope too well with, um, with a, you know, a big blank canvas. They like to know what they're building and they need to have really tight specification where as a designer, you know, many designers actually like working with, with a fairly blank canvas. So with that in mind, the chances of finding one person that can design and develop a site is, is pretty small. Most freelancers who, you know, who, who, who build sites, they'll be stronger in one area than the other. So you're either likely to get a, a good looking site that maybe that they're unable, unable to add some of the more advanced coding or in, in reverse, you're, you're able to get a site which is really well coded, but maybe doesn't look as good. So I would definitely go for a company that at least separates out the design and development. We've hired, I don't know, dozens of developers and designers and I don't think we've had a single one who's ever done both. No, I can't, I can't think of a single one who's ever been competent at both. It's just they are completely different skill sets. It's like the it's like the accountant versus the marketing person, right? Just completely different skill sets. So um, anyone who's trying to do both, it's, it's going to be tough. We, we normally say go for a, a company who's used to building a lot of websites. And I know that we would say that because we're a marketing company, but... The thing is about a freelancer who has to do, you know, three or four websites per year to, to, to make their money. Three or four websites per year means that they're finishing three or four websites per year, which means that you're going to be waiting at least, you know, that long to, to have your site done. If you find a company that is used to building a lot of websites, then 
they're going to have efficient processes. Our, our own web development processes have come such a long way, in, even in the last year, because we've had to build a lot of websites at scale. We've had to make sure we've got processes for building effective and, and well-optimized websites. So that has meant our clients get a, a much better experience than they did, say, even just a year ago. So I'd definitely go for a company that has experience with, with volume because that means that they are forced to build efficient processes. Um, I want to suggest some of the reasons why a freelancer might be better just to see whether or not um, Tim agrees with some of them or, or thinks <laughs> that they're all, they're all rubbish. So one thing that I wonder about a freelancer, whether or not they might be slightly cheaper, obviously if they, if they don't have the, the overheads um, of a larger company, so, so they might work out a little bit cheaper price-wise. Do you think that's um, a fair criticism? It can be. I think it depends on the freelancer. If, if we're judging sites that are of the same build quality, I'd actually say that we are, I, I, you know, and obviously I'm, I'm, I'm going to be biased, but compared to the, the freelancers I know that build sites of, of the, the, the right sort of quality, we're actually considerably cheaper because the amount of time that they have to put into every site build means that they are not able to take on many projects. So they have to charge a lot of money for them. So yeah, I, I still I still say larger companies tend to be cheaper as long as they've got efficient processes. Uh, so that brings me on to my onto my next point. Um, freelancer, I wonder whether or not they have more flexibility. So you know, one of the reasons why we can we can maybe you know do those do the, do those sort of website designs uh, cheaper is because we've got you know good processes in place. Uh, but I wonder whether or not that limits the the flexibility of somebody you know uh, changing their mind or or um, you know wanting to go a different way or or have have a page redesign and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's yeah, I guess uh, when there's a, a benefit from a process, there's always a downside from a process. And that downside is if you are really indecisive or you want to come back with a bunch of changes, you know, six months down the line, we're less likely to say, yeah, come on board. We'll just do it all for you free of charge. So, yeah, but I, I, I still think the benefit of the process, the organization and the efficiency far outweighs outweighs the cons i think that is a good point yeah if if uh, if you had a, a good process in place then you wouldn't need to make those changes would you um and then the, the last point i wonder about freelancers so um i know that for example our websites we build them in wordpress is there an advantage with hiring a freelancer that might be familiar with a, with a less well-known platform you know if you if you wanted to get some some upgrades to your website rather than a redesign or or you have a specific need for a specific platform or anything like that yeah, 100%. If you're coming and you, you know, you've got a big commerce store and you want to make some changes, but you don't want a new site, then we're not, you know, a large company will, will tend to say, do you know what, that's not going to be efficient for us to do. Whereas a freelancer who's, you know, needs a few hours work or whatever, they're, they're going to be more likely to take that stuff on. Normally, we'd look at that project and say, okay, so the shape of the business and where this site needs to be you're more efficient going for a, a more modern and more capable platform so we'd suggest a, a new site in that situation to set you up for the future whereas if you know you're, you're really you're stuck either through budget or through choice that you want to continue using the platform that you've got then yes you, you definitely might find a, a freelancer is able to do um, ad hoc work on unfamiliar platforms cheaper yeah that is one potential advantage i'll give you that <laughs> yeah i mean i can think of a few clients that, that we've got exposure ninja haven't we that we've turned down doing their dev work sometimes for, for kind of platform reasons or sometimes because you know it's just little ad hoc bits and it's not worth you know us getting involved haven't we yeah some sometimes particularly if it's an unfamiliar cms or it's been poorly coded in the first place you can go in just to fix one thing and it ends up you know you 
it's like whack-a-mole as soon as you fix one thing something over there is broken and six months down the line you've you've done a bunch of stuff and you know that the site's still not there and you would have been better off just building it from scratch and, and doing it properly the first time around so yeah we, we we will tend to turn down work if we think that it's not going to be efficient for us to do or for the client to pay for if they're just better off getting a getting the site done properly for sure uh, so uh, I wonder if there's any particular requests from clients that you get that you often have to to turn down, Brittany. Um, no, I haven't had any weird requests. Uh, one request that I did have a few weeks ago, which is a, is a good point to make, is a client asked us to um, add an image to their website, but the image contained a lot of content. And um, we advised against it because obviously the, the content can't be indexed in Google. The client didn't really understand why, obviously under, understand why we've turned we turned around and said ideally it needs to be physical text but just thing little bit things like that really that are the main ones that come through but obviously we we want to provide we provide guidance and we obviously we want the site to do well and we know full well that if he had if he added that content as physical text onto his site it would be indexed in google which could lead to somebody purchasing one of his bags yeah, I mean, I think that's a hugely important point, really, because, you know, a, a perfect example of some of some text that somebody might choose to have as an image would be like the title or, or maybe the title of a specific page. And so if, if, you know, you've got an image which looks all really fancy and it says, you know, accountants in Nottingham and, and it, but it looks really fancy and they've, and they've you know, had that hand drawn or something or, or, or created by a designer. The fact that, you know, that's that's their title on that page. So Google's not going to be able to read that. So if somebody searches for accountants in Nottingham, then that that text actually doesn't appear anywhere on the page at all, does it? Yeah, that's totally that's exactly it. Well, sometimes I say to people, you have to you have to realize that when Google sends their um, their bots out, their spiders to index sites is they've got no eyes. So they can't see an image. All they can do is read. So if you can provide a website, obviously, that's got the content is physical content wherever it can possibly be it's going to benefit a lot more than having it in an image another request that we have that we often have to turn down is if people just want to scrape an entire section from another site obviously that doesn't really have any value it doesn't really add anything and it's unlikely to to get the site ranking so yeah just just keep it original if you're selling products which are already available elsewhere on the internet then write unique product descriptions and do all that sort of stuff but yeah just just make new stuff give google a reason to rank your site over these other sites that have exactly the same content cool and i think we're going to leave it there for this episode of the exposure ninja podcast so today we have been discussing uh, website build and design the the first thing we had a look at was when you can see whether or not you need a new website uh, then we moved on to some of the things that you should consider before building the website uh, then the content of that site uh, and then the last thing that we looked at today was some of the benefits of hiring a, uh, a freelancer or hiring a digital marketing uh, company to to build your website for you um, I hope everybody has enjoyed the uh, this episode of the Exposure Ninja podcast. If you have, please do leave us a review on iTunes or whichever other uh, podcast app you are listening to this podcast on. And um, yeah, if you... Um, <laughs> Just say see you again say. next week. <laughs> and uh, I hope to see you again soon.